Now, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am pleased to introduce today's speaker. Canada's relationship with the Asia-Pacific region is often complex, sometimes volatile, and always evolving. 17 countries make up the Asia-Pacific region, China, Japan, India, and Australia among them. Trade, investment, and immigration between Canada and the region continue on an upward trajectory. According to Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, the Honourable John Baird, our government and Canadian businesses realize that Asia is full of opportunities to expand Canada's economic prosperity. We know that Canada must take an active role in this part of the world. We view it as a national imperative. Today, we are pleased to have the President and CEO of the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada with us. The Foundation is an independent think tank on Canada's relations with Asia. Its President and CEO is Mr. Yuan Pao Wu. He is a thought leader on contemporary Asian affairs and trans-Pacific relations. As one of Canada's most respected analysts on Asia, Mr. Wu is frequently consulted by senior officials, business leaders, and civil society organizations. He has an impressive resume of international advisory and consulting assignments. Among them, he has worked with the World Bank, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, APEC, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, and the Asian Development Bank. Mr. Wu is also, in his, uh, also active in his Vancouver community and has served on the Greater Vancouver Advisory Board for the Salvation Army and the board of the Vancouver Academy of Music. Mr. Wu, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is yours. Thank you, Gordon, for the introduction. Council General, Misra, members of the Consulate Corps, distinguished guests, head table guests, friends, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. I want to thank the Canadian Club for inviting me to speak and to not just to speak, but to speak at the season finale, I should say. <laughs> That's how we should have advertised it, the season finale. And I want to thank all of you for taking the time to attend today's lunch. The Canadian Club has been a popular venue in recent weeks with a parade of politicians campaigning from this podium. Well, not this podium, but the Canadian Club podium. And they've been making promises that they may or may not be able to keep. <laughs> I am happy to provide you with something different today. And while my speech has nothing to do with the Ontario election, it has a lot to do with the prospects for the Ontario economy and the challenges that the newly elected Premier will have to deal with. I'm sure the Canadian Club will invite whoever becomes Premier to give a speech after she or he takes office. When you do, I suggest you offer the Premier the same speech title that I am using this afternoon. Now for the hard part. Let me get right to it then and tell you why I think in my world of Canada-Asia relations, we are in difficult terrain, and why we must take a very different approach to trans-Pacific relations if Canada wants to maintain its standard of living to, and to have influence in a world that is increasingly centered on Asia. We learned last week that the United States has finally regained the jobs that were lost in the Great Recession of 2008. That was uh, six years ago. 
And the slow recovery in America explains a lot about why Ontario's economy has been less than stellar over that period. Well, the effects of the 2008 recession are still with us. And while Canada has recovered more strongly than other G7 countries, I don't think the significance of 2008 is fully understood in this country. I'm not referring to the lessons of 2008 in terms of financial sector regulation and the use of unorthodox monetary policy. Rather, I'm talking about 2008 as a turning point in China's positioning in the world. It is not just that China produced the largest fiscal stimulus package relative to national income in response to the global crisis, and in so doing, kept the world economy afloat. It is rather that after 2008, the importance of China changed from that of simply being a large and fast-growing market to that of a country which has started to embrace its position as a major global power and is seeking to define that position in a more explicit and some would say assertive manner. Now, many Canadians already understand the first part of post-2008 China. The sustained growth of the PRC through the recession was a lifeline for Canada, especially commodity exporters. Canadian domestic exports to the world in Canadian dollar terms fell by 27% in 2009. They fell by nearly a third in the year after the recession. To the US, which is of course our most important market, the drop in export sales in 2009 was 26%. To the UK, it was minus 7%. To Mexico, it was minus 26%. To Germany, minus 17%. To France, minus 19%. The only major market which saw an increase in Canadian exports in 2009 was China, which received 8% more exports from Canada in that year compared to 2008. Even today, ladies and gentlemen, six years after the recession, Canadian exports to the United States and to the world, for that matter, have not recovered to the level of 2008, whereas exports to China in that same period have doubled. The second part of post-2008 China is not as well understood in this country. It is that the Chinese have come to see the status quo of the international economic system as one which may not be conducive to Chinese interests and which may indeed run counter to China's aspirations. Bear in mind that the massive fall in asset prices and the subsequent policy of very low interest rates in the West hurt foreign holders of U.S. securities, but China was foremost among them. And quantitative, quantitative easing by Western central banks, particularly the Fed, has unleashed a flood of liquidity on the world and increased speculative demand for real and financial assets, especially in emerging markets. China's own response to the global financial crisis, while hugely beneficial for the world and for Canada, is not so clearly beneficial for China. The massive expansion of domestic lending after 2008 has inevitably found its way into dubious projects, resulting in a mountain of bad debt in the financial system that now threatens to destabilize the economy. For Beijing, you know, one of the lessons of the 2008 financial crisis was that 
the stimulus package in China did more good for trading partners than it did for China. Next time the world economy enters a funk, don't count on Beijing to bail us out. Since 2008, there has been a steady increase in China's international economic profile. Not because China is an important trading partner for many countries, but because it's become the most important trading partner for a large number of countries. Can you guess how many countries count China as the most important trading partner today? 127. 127 countries count China as their most important trading partner. In comparison, the United States is the most important trading partner for only 76 countries. China's increased global profile is also because of Beijing's desire to insert itself more deliberately as a player in the international economic system. It should come as no surprise that the policy of gradually internationalizing the renminbi, the Chinese currency, started in 2009 in the aftermath of the crisis. And it happened in large part out of concerns over the stability and reliability of the US dollar and the euro. Virtually not out of nowhere, the RMB has emerged as the eighth most used currency for international trade and portfolio settlement, accounting for 9% of trade finance globally and 17% of China's trade with the world. Since 2008, again, the turning point of 2008, China has established currency swap agreements. These are agreements between central banks with 22 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and the EU. Canada is not among the 22 countries. I believe China is clearly on a path of capital account liberalization and that full convertibility of the renminbi is within sight. In the same way, China's outward direct investment has grown substantially in the last decade, while the go-out policy, the policy to encourage outward investment, has been in place since 2000. Chinese investments abroad spiked in 2008 and has been on a steady upward trajectory since that time. The stock of Chinese foreign direct investment abroad at the end of 2002 is estimated at 90 billion US dollars, and this is almost certainly an underestimate because of investments from Chinese companies domiciled outside of China. Now, some of that investment has found its way to Canada, particularly in the oil and gas and mining sectors. But the impact of Chinese investment on the Canadian economy pales in comparison to investments in developing countries, especially Africa, parts of Southeast Asia, and increasingly Latin America. In addition to greater Chinese visibility on the global economic stage since 2008, we have also seen more recently greater Chinese assertiveness on global and regional issues, including on questions of territorial disputes and cyber espionage. It would seem that China has moved on from the Deng Xiaoping maxim on foreign policy, bide your time and keep your head down. That's passed. Unlike on economic issues, China's voice on global diplomacy and international affairs is still muted, but there is no question that Beijing is looking for a different way to engage the world on political and economic and security issues, and particularly in its relationship with the United States. I interpret the aggressive statements by 
statements and actions by Beijing in the South China and the East China Seas to be as much about Sino-US relations as about disputes with Japan, Vietnam, Philippines, and other Asian neighbors. The Chinese have called for a new type of great power relations. This is the term that Beijing uses, a new type of great power relations. And while I do not see in this statement an intrinsic hostility towards the United States, I am taken by the unambiguous claim, or at least aspiration, to great power status. The point here is simple. China wants to be seen not just as a large and fast-growing market that provides economic relief for the world and which conforms to the established post-war economic order. Rather, China is returning to a position of global importance which extends much beyond the size of its economy and which will require a rebalancing of relations with established powers. The same is true of India, which has just elected a new government and is talking openly about being, becoming the largest economy in the world by the 100th anniversary of Indian independence, just over three decades from now. If indeed India and China become the two largest economies in the world, how can you not expect that the international economic system will look a little more Asian? The current approach of the Government of Canada towards relations with China, India and Asia more broadly, however, is a pre-2008 conception of Asian countries. It takes as the starting point of Asia simply as markets that are large and growing very fast and therefore opportunities for Canada to diversify our exports. The lesson that Ottawa has taken from 2008 correctly is that China and Asia matter for Canada in economic terms and that Canadian industry must diversify its business to include India, China, Southeast Asia and other fast-growing emerging markets as part of the Canadian portfolio. That is the core message of the effort to build an oil pipeline from Alberta to the West Coast to invest in liquefaction plants in British Columbia to export LNG to Asia. It is also the core message of a new approach to Canadian foreign policy that places economic diplomacy at its very core. The Government of Canada is right to emphasize trade and investment with Asian countries, and the efforts of the last six years have been impressive. But the results of these efforts have been fair at best. And I fear that we are now entering a period of diminishing returns. You recall I cited earlier the impressive uh, growth in Canadian exports to China between 2008 and 2013, a doubling of exports, no less. And yet, our market share in China, which is Canadian exports as a share of total Chinese imports, has barely moved during that period and remains at a paltry 1%. The reality is that Canadian exports to China grew because Chinese imports overall grew. Now, this is not to disparage the investment in trade promotion over the last six years or to discount their importance. Indeed, Canada's position in the Chinese market has been strengthened by the establishment of new trade offices, ministerial visits, etc., and these investments will yield dividends 
for years to come. But we should not kid ourselves in believing that Canada has turned to Asian markets in a significant way and that we have caught up with our competitors in the region. Now, even if we are content with a 1% share of the Chinese market, by the way, the market share for Asia as a whole also is around 1%. So it's the same across the region. But even if we're content with a, just a 1% market share, we should not take the last six years of rapid export growth to China as the trajectory for the future. You see, the major sources of growth in the last decade were natural resource exports. They were buoyed by high commodity prices, what they call the commodity supercycle, and by a massive increase in Chinese fixed asset investment. Both of these factors are not likely to be sustained. Indeed, the Chinese government is actively seeking to reduce the share of investment in GDP, which will lower demand for natural resources and create downward price pressure on commodities. Overall GDP growth in China is expected to dip to between 6 and 8% for the foreseeable future, with a greater proportion of output coming from consumer spending. In other words, the pattern of Chinese growth will shift from manufacturing and property development to services, including healthcare, education, logistics, retail, hospitality, and a wide range of other urban and what I call quality of life services. The goal of Chinese economic development today is no longer GDP growth per se, but it is what Premier Li Keqiang has described as the two rises, a rise in the share of labor in national income relative to capital and a rise in the share of consumption to total output. It is not without irony that a supposedly socialist country has based its economic development model of the last three decades on keeping wages low, essentially exploiting workers, and favoring the owners of capital over wage laborers. But that approach, ladies and gentlemen, it would seem is now over. In other words, if the pattern of Canadian exports continues to focus on the current mix of commodity sales, it will be even harder in the years ahead to maintain our 1% market share in China, let alone to grow it. If indeed the major source of Chinese growth will be personal consumption and government spending on services, quality of life, the effort required by Canadian exporters to succeed in the Chinese market will be even greater than it has been for commodity exports. Now, in saying as much, I'm not minimizing the success of commodity exports to China, but selling potash, coal, copper, or lumber to China does not require much product customization. It does not require a very intimate knowledge of the domestic market and its regional peculiarities. It can be accomplished, by and large, on an arm's length basis with relatively minimal investment in the Chinese market itself and little or no involvement in downstream users of the commodity. When it comes to consumer products and services, however, or meeting the broader social needs of Chinese society, such as healthcare, environmental remediation, entertainment, and education, there is no possibility of success without an on-the-ground investment in people, knowledge, technology, and networks. In other words, the next phase of Canadian success in Asia, in China, in India, 
is going to be much harder than what we have enjoyed in the last six years. Now, the good news is that there is, in fact, substantial Canadian expertise in all of these so-called quality-of-life products and services I've discussed. But is there willingness on the part of Canadians to take on this challenge? And do we have the right kind of leadership from Ottawa and the provinces to head in this direction? Well, let me return to the theme of my speech, which is that we are finished with the easy part of strengthening Canada-Asia relations, and we have now entered much more difficult terrain without an adequate understanding that we are now entering the hard part. I use easy and hard as technical terms. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> it's made harder, you know, by the fact that Canadians do not place very much importance or very high importance on building deeper ties with Asian countries. I am not making this up. Our 2014 National Opinion Poll released yesterday shows declining support for closer economic ties with Asia, fear of China's rise, and a reluctance to invest in Asia knowledge and skills. China is still ranked as a highly important economic partner for Canada by 35% of respondents nationally, behind the US, the UK, and the EU, but down 10 percentage points from 2013. Opposition to free trade agreements with Asian countries has risen in the last year, with about 50% of the population now against FTAs with both India and China. You know, the poll suggests that Canadians seem to confuse personal affinity with economic interests. It's no surprise that Canadians feel the most warmth towards Australia. But why do twice as many Canadians rank Australia as a highly important economic partner than South Korea when Canada's relationship, trade relationship with Korea is three and a half times bigger than Canada's trade relationship with Australia? Detailed analysis of our polling data provides some clues. Canadians prefer to build ties with traditional allies rather than with emerging countries. So not just Asia, includes Brazil and other emerging markets. Canadians are concerned about a competitive threat of countries with low wages and less stringent standards. They place importance on strengthening ties with countries that are democratic and have a good human rights record. They also fear foreign firms taking advantage of our natural resources and advanced technologies. When asked if our way of life is threatened by foreign influences, 60% of Canadians agreed. Let me say that again. When we ask Canadians if they thought our way of life is threatened by foreign influences, 6 out of 10 Canadians said yes. By coincidence, uh, there was a similar poll conducted in Australia and released just last week. It showed that on a scale of 0 to 100, the warmth that Australians feel towards China was 60, just below Japan at 67, and just above India at 57. So basically all in the you know, 55, 65 range. A decent score, I would say. In contrast, in our poll, Canadians score China at just 4.6 out of a 10-point scale. If you convert it to the Australian scale, that means a 14 percentage point difference based on a similar question. 
Now, it isn't that Australians are naive about China's economic and political rise. When they were asked about Chinese investment or security concerns posed by an ascended Beijing, both Australians and Canadians voiced similar concerns. 41% of Australians view the development of China as a world power as a critical threat compared to the same percentage of Canadians who see the economic rise of China as more of a threat than an opportunity. The difference, I think, is that in Australia, there is a national consensus on the importance of China for that country, which translates into an all-party support for robust engagement with Beijing and other Asian countries, in spite of reservations and fears and concerns on non-economic issues. During the 2013 Australian election campaign, the platforms of Tony Abbott, who was in Ottawa just uh, a few days ago, uh, Tony Abbott and the former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, could be seen in very crude terms as a contest between an Anglophile, Tony Abbott, Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford and all that, and, uh, and Kevin Rudd, who is a Mandarin speaker. They could not be, in crude terms, uh, framed more differently. And yet, on broad Asia policy, Prime Minister Abbott has stayed the course. One of his first major post-election promises was the conclusion of free trade agreements with Korea, China and Japan all within 2014. And he followed up on this promise last month by taking the largest ever Australian trade mission on a tour of Northeast Asia. The existence of a political consensus on the importance of Asia has allowed for a more mature discussion on relations with the region and a view of China not just as a large and fast-growing market for Australian exports, but as a global power returning to the world stage. There is no such similar political consensus on the importance of Asia of Canada, much less a national consensus among Canadians. If anything, our poll points to a population that is inward-looking, fearful of foreign influence competition, and resistant to change. Now, these concerns are the most pronounced in Ontario. For example, respondents from Ontario have the coolest feelings towards Asian countries. They are more likely to see the economic rise of China and India as a threat rather than an opportunity. They are least supportive of more student exchanges and partnerships with Asian universities and they are most inclined to see foreign control of the Canadian economy as a threat. Now, these concerns are not to be scoffed at, but it would be defeatist to simply accept the current state of affairs. Many of the worries that Canadians harbour can be addressed, I believe, by smart policy and by a more fulsome discussion of the options that are available. For example, the bugbear about foreign exploitation of the Canadian economy is at least 50 years old, and it can be shown to be false. It can also be mitigated by domestic regulation without resort to arbitrary restrictions on foreign investment, including from state-owned enterprises. And the best response to the competitive threat of lower-cost countries is not to limit economic ties, but it is to expand Canadian part participation in these same markets, which are typically the fastest-growing in the world. The Jobs and Prosperity Council of Ontario made this point very powerfully by showing that 
Only 5% of Ontario's exports in 2012 went to 12, the 12 fastest growing economies, compared to 10% for Canada as a whole, 13% for the UK, and 35% for the United States. This is all a question of where you're placing your bets. And Ontario is only placing 5% of its bets, if you will, on the fastest growing markets in the world, compared to much higher numbers uh, in other Western industrialized economies. The Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada is committed to working with Ontario leaders to increase Asia awareness in the province and to support the Asia initiatives of business, civil society, and the education sector. We have in recent years greatly expanded our presence in Toronto. I'm pleased today to announce the formation of an Asia advisory group to help our Toronto office, led by Kasi Rao, to design and deliver the programs that will assist Ontarians to be more plugged in to Asia opportunities. Let me just take the opportunity to recognize four of our Toronto Asia Advisory Group members uh, who are with us today at today's lunch, uh, Lisa DeWild, Hugh McKinnon, David White, and Lisa Baton. Thank you for helping us in this way. In addition to leadership from the business community, we need leadership from the political class, which is divided on Asia policy, not only across party lines, but also within parties. Since 2008, there has been extensive effort put into strengthening economic ties with Asia, numerous ministerial and state visits, opening of trade offices, conclusion of a trade deal with South Korea. But, you know, we were playing catch-up in 2008, and we are still playing catch-up today. What's more, the easy phase of trying to catch up is over. The frenetic pace of the last six years, impressive in its own right, was simply about doing what our competitors had done years before. Even with all the energy that has gone into the promotion of trade and investment with Asian countries, it is hard to conclude that Canada has an Asia strategy along the lines of other industrialized countries, or that Canada stands out in Asia as a preferred partner in any given area. In the light of renewed questioning about Canada's commitment to broader, deeper, and stronger ties with Asia, the Prime Minister has an opportunity to make an unambiguous statement about Asia's importance for Canada and how his government will prioritize relations with Asia across a range of economic, political, and cultural issues. The leaders of the NDP, the Liberal Party, and the Green Party can compete with the government by unveiling their versions of an Asia strategy for Canada. Now, the tone, the priorities, the tactics of the different platforms will, of course, be different. But how refreshing it will be for political consensus on Asia to emerge, one that not only recognizes the region's importance, but is committed to deep engagement with Asia. A top priority should be a national effort to increase the Asian knowledge, skills, and experience of Canadians. Only 16% of Canadians have lived, worked, or traveled in Asia. In this room, it's probably 96%, I know, but uh, this is an unfair sample. Unsurprisingly, there was much greater receptivity to and support of Asia and Asia-related initiatives from this demographic compared to the general population. That gives me some hope. And it's also encouraging in our poll that younger Canadians ages 18 to 29, rank Asian countries more highly as economic partners for Canada and are more inclined to make Asia as 
a top foreign policy priority compared to the general population. I believe, therefore, that there is a need for greater emphasis on teaching about Asia in the school system and options for learning Asian languages at an early age. I'm pleased to say that the ministers of education from all of Canada's provinces and territories have recognized this need and they've endorsed a national conference on Asia competence, which the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada will hold in Calgary in October 2014. Now, while some will argue that these initiatives are precisely the sort of foreign influence that Canadians fear, there should be no doubt that resisting change and relying on our traditional trading partners will only make it more difficult to maintain standards of living and our way of life. It will be tough for politicians to, rely, to relay these hard truths to Canadians, but that is precisely my point. We have entered the hard part in building stronger relations with Asia, and the lack of public support only makes it harder for the political class to take corrective action. Without political leadership on Asia across party lines, public support will remain weak, compounding the problem of political will. Unless there is a national consensus on Asia's importance for Canada and sustained investment in Asia knowledge and skills, Canadians will be left behind on the most important global economic and geopolitical power shift in a century. Thank you. Mr. Wu, on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, I'd like to thank you for your tremendously insightful presentation today. The Foundation's national opinion poll is riveting and revealing. We applaud your tireless efforts to enhance Canada's relations with the Asia-Pacific region. It is clear that attention and care must continue to be taken in relations with Asia, um, uh, particularly because it is a national imperative. The Foundation's work, its analysis reports, and information gathering are key resources to help us get there. As you complete your final term at the helm of the Foundation, we wish you success in your future endeavors. But, as with any good season finale, you have left us wanting more. So we hope you come back and share with us an update on how we are doing on the hard part of this task as we pursue the national imperative. Thank you for joining us. And a quick reminder to our live audience, please don't forget to fill out your uh, event survey cards as we very much value, value your feedback. And um, finally, on behalf of the club and myself, I note that this is our final event of the season and my final event as president of the club. It has been a tremendous year with events surrounding several book launches, hearing the stories of Order of Canada recipients, exploring public policies and politics, and hearing from many, many business leaders. We're grateful to all of our members and supporters for an outstanding season. Our 2014-2015 season will begin in September when Jennifer Sloan, our current president-elect, assumes the presidency of the club. To learn more about the club and our upcoming season, please visit us at canadianclub.org. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV for their continued promotion of Canadian club events. Until next season, we wish everyone a very safe and happy summer. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you.